0: Thanks for downloading this History Hub podcast. History Hub is based at the University College Dublin School of History. For more information, go to historyhub.ie. Our podcasts are available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and many other podcasting apps. If you enjoy our content, please rate and review our channel, as it helps others to find out about our work. Professor Nadav Davidovich is an epidemiologist and public health physician. He is chair of the Department of Health Systems Management at Ben-Gurion University of the Negev in Israel. His areas of expertise include health policy, public health, health promotion, and the history of medicine. Professor Davidovich recently visited University College Dublin School of History as part of the EU's Erasmus Plus program, where he was based in the Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland. During his visit, he recorded three podcasts for History Hub. In this first episode, Professor Davidovich discusses resistance to vaccination.
1: Hello, my name is Nadav Davidovich. What I'm going to do in the coming podcast is trying to persuade you the importance of history of medicine, not only as a discipline by itself, but also its importance in policy making, being near the table together with many other disciplines, such as epidemiology, sociology, anthropology, in working together with public health practitioners to have a policy making in a variety of contemporary issues, bringing the historical sensibilities to question our current status quo and trying to understand the ethical issues that are involved in public health policy making. Today, I'm going to discuss with you vaccination, resistance to vaccination, and how to persuade people to be vaccinated. The hegemonic status of vaccination in the world of medicine today is very impressive. Vaccination occupy a place of honor parallel to achievements such as antibiotics, as well as improvements in sanitation and water quality, considered as a leading cause of the drop in death rates from contagious diseases and the rise in longevity that has been registered in the course of the 20th century. Yet while vaccinations are considered as a paradigm of success, At the same time, they have encountered fierce criticism and unparalleled opposition throughout the history of medicine. In many places, opposition to vaccination has reached the scope of civil insurrection, with closure of schools and places of employment. Massive political mobilization against these medical interventions has also been common. To this day, especially with the recent reintroduction of immunizations against smallpox as part of the fight against bioterrorism, or the introduction of polio vaccines as part of the eradication programs around the world, vaccination continues to be an issue steeped in controversy. The history of opposition to vaccination is protracted and can be traced back to Edward Jenner's publication in 1798 on the possibility of immunization against smallpox. General suggestions raised immediate strong controversy, interestingly not so much in the public and much more in the medical community. One cannot regard opposition to vaccination as a uniform phenomenon, and this is a very important point here. Vaccinations themselves have undergone many changes, both in va- manufacturing techniques and in social and legal contexts of their administration, and seemingly the character of opposition has varied and changed over the years from country to country. Yet despite this, those opposed to vaccination have generally been portrayed in monolithic terms as irrational groups tied primarily to the radical fringe of alternative medicine. Such a tendency is in fashion not only in current medical publications, but also in many writings within the realm of history of medicine. Yet recently has finally been the recognition of an important intellectual and even civic potential embodied in historical research on opposition to vaccination, as well in the ability of this issue to serve as a vehicle for gaining a better understanding of the politics of the body and of the relations among health, culture and society. Now, before going to the question of resistance to vaccination, I want to introduce some of the main concepts regarding vaccination policy. The foundation for the societal benefit of vaccination is herd immunity, a theory first formally articulated in the 1920s through which the entire community will be protected against a contagion if a sufficiently large percentage of the group is immune. From the perspective of the community, the optimal situation occurs when each member assumes a small risk of undergoing vaccination in order to protect both himself or herself and the community as a whole. Thus, a successful vaccination program depends at least in part on individuals making an altruistic decision. But as one analysis noted, and I'm quoting, an individual's ideal strategy would be to encourage everyone else to be vaccinated except himself or herself. So a paradox exists. The decision of any one individual to refuse vaccination will not affect the group's protection, but if too many people made the same choice, those decisions in the aggregate would undermine herd immunity. People who are fit to undergo vaccination but choose not to have been termed free riders since they enjoy the benefit of herd immunity that results from other members of the community having assumed a small risk of vaccination. Following this paradox or this tension between the free riders' dilemma and the benefit of society, those responsible for vaccination programs have adopted a wide variety of approaches to achieving high level of coverage. These have included traditional health education and promotion campaigns in mass media, recommendations given to patients by individual practitioners and issued by official medical societies, incentive programs that reimburse healthcare providers who achieve high coverage among their patients, installation of a network of mother and child care centers with free delivery of vaccination, or on the other spectrum, compulsory measures such as mandates for immunization prior to school entry. All of these approaches attempt to strike a balance between the potentially competing values of respecting individual choice and assuring a sufficiently high degree of population immunity. One of the great challenges facing health officials is that a successful immunization program will almost inevitably become a victim of its own success. The more it suppresses an infectious disease, the more it endangers complacency by diminishing the threat which initially led to widespread acceptance of the vaccine. Now, in my research, I studied two different countries, understanding the different historical context of how this tension between persuasion and compulsion is actually taking place regarding vaccination. So if you take United States in Israel, in these two countries, two democracies, the recommended schedule of vaccine is crafted by unit of central government in collaboration with advisory or consulting bodies. But there are numerous differences in standard clinical practices between the countries, including which vaccines are routinely administered, the ages at which they are given, and etc. Even greater variations exist in terms of how vaccines are delivered, what portion of childhood vaccines are given by general practitioners, pediatricians, and public health physicians and nurses, and especially, and this is my concern today, whether or not vaccination is mandatory in certain circumstances, such as for children in school or daycare, or for members of the military. So among these two democratic nations, United States and Israel, Probably United States is one of the most extreme examples of the most aggressive in its use of compulsion. Vaccination are required prior to entry in schools and daycare centers under a national network of state law. And although many states provide exemptions for parents who have religious or philosophical objection to vaccination, the laws have nevertheless come under attack as unwarranted intrusion by the government into parental autonomy and responsibility for their children's healthcare. So in recent years, parents' activists in the United States opposed to vaccination and have pressured some state legislator to change the laws in order to make it easier to obtain an exemption. In addition, exemptions have been subject to core challenges on constitutional grounds, with no clear pattern of jurisprudence having emerged. In Israel, on the other hand... Different strategies have been used to encourage vaccinations. Public health in Israel has its roots in a health culture based on communalism and on a tradition of an interventionist state. Already during the British Mandate period, before the establishment of the Israeli state, a network of mother and child health centers was founded all over the country, vaccinations given free of charge. The reach of this public health system was complemented by use of schools as a site of encouraging vaccination. Parents may object to vaccination of their child with no need of explaining their objection and in contrast to the United States, children may still attend school without having been vaccinated. Under normal circumstances, there is no legal basis for compulsory vaccination in Israel. Israeli public health officials believe that the more flexible system strikes a better balance between protecting the community and respecting the rights of individual parents who might object vaccination. It is true that even in Israel, there are special circumstances, especially in state of emergencies, when, according to our public health ordinance, compulsory public health measures such as quarantine, but also vaccination are justified. But it is interesting to know that actually only one time in Israeli history, in 1949, this situation of emergency was actually applied. So to sum up this history, it is interesting to know that while in Israel we don't have compulsory vaccination, vaccination rates are much higher than in the United States where you have compulsory vaccination. Now, to bring another country here as a comparative example, Canada. In Canada, like in Israel, lawmakers for legal and philosophical regions have eschewed a U.S.-style system of exclusion, and under the Canadian constitution, vaccination cannot be made compulsorily. Interestingly, at least one state in the United States, Indiana, used such a certification system in the 50s, but subsequently replaced it with a stricter exclusionary law. So the difference between Israel, United States, and other countries illustrates the wide variation in vaccination policy that exists currently among industrialized democracies, and and how actually not necessarily a compulsory policy is the most efficient in terms of using it in order to raise vaccination rates. Other countries have adopted a range of other strategies to boost their immunization rates, for example, in France and Australia, parents must provide proof of their children immunization in order to receive state child benefit payments. In England, general practitioners are giving a monetary incentive in the form of cash payments when 90% of the infants in their care are fully immunized. Another interesting development in the field of vaccination policy is the recent introduction of what is called sometimes vaccine safety actual and perceived, that has been a significant source of controversy over the course of the 20th century, and especially in the last three decades. Because vaccines are given to healthy people, the standard for their safety is higher, and tolerance for adverse events lower than for other kinds of drugs. The vast majority of vaccine side effects are transient and mild, such as pain, swelling at the injection site, or fever. But sometimes rare severe events have been well documented. Paralytic polio is caused by one in several million doses of the oral polio vaccine, for example, and dangerous encephalitis results from one in several thousand doses of a whole cell pertussis vaccine, which has been phased out in favor of a safer cellular formula. The inherent risk of vaccination has led most nations to recognize the obligation to assure compensation for for the small number of people inevitably harmed by vaccines. The first no-fault compensation programs were established in Germany and France in the early 60s, and over the following three decades, most industrialized nations have set up some type of system to compensate victims and release manufacturers from liability for non-negligently caused harms. These systems vary widely in their specific provisions and methods of administration. In the United States, for example, they enacted the compensation law in 1986 in response to a growing tide of litigation against manufacturers of the oral polio vaccine, while in rare causes vaccine-induced paralysis and the controversy over the safety of the whole cell pertussis vaccine. This brought finally to the enactment of the 1986 law. Yet the program has had a turbulent history. In the early 90s, a huge backlog of cases and budgetary shortfalls forces to be temporarily shut down, and parent activists have bitterly criticized the vaccine injury table, as it was called, the listing of adverse events associated with various vaccines that are presumably compensable. So, for example, as of 2010, almost 9,000 claims had been filled with the program, with about only 1,000 being judged compensable. In Israel, on the other hand, a compensation law that was enacted in 1989 was almost never used. And the parliament, the Israeli Knesset, had acted after a district court decision calling for a legislation model that which existed in the UK that would shift the burden placed on parents to prove culpability in cases of vaccination adverse effects. Under the act, an expert committee decided whether there is a causal relationship between vaccination and injury. Up to 2010, only 19 claims were submitted and only five were approved. Controversies over vaccine safety have increasingly crossed national borders in recent decades. In the mid-1970s, for example, a study published in the British Medical Journal prompted widespread public concern in the UK about the alleged connection between pertussis vaccine and permanent neurological damage in children. Prominent coverage in the popular media triggered a precipitous decline in public acceptance of the vaccine, and in just a few years, uptake of the vaccine plummeted from about 80% to about 30%. Falling closely on the heels of this decline was a dramatic resurgence of pertussis. Beginning in 1978, and over the next two years, the UK recorded the highest number of cases of pertussis since vaccination had begun. The controversy soon spread abroad as concerns about safety of the vaccine led to a similar sequence of events in Japan and several other countries. Interestingly, both in Israel and the United States, actually, the pertussis controversies had almost no repercussion on vaccination coverage. So, in order To sum up this short history of vaccination and resistance to vaccination, we need to say that although many times resistance to vaccination has been presented as a very monolithic phenomenon, it's kind of irrational, actually throughout the history of vaccination, my claim is that many times resistance to vaccination actually indeed did improve vaccination and did actually a good service in terms of promoting compensation laws, promoting incentives to vaccinate children. As, As we saw with the comparative analysis between Israel and the United States, many times actually taking the route of persuasion and giving incentives instead of using compulsion actually brought much higher rates of vaccination. So, to summarize, bringing the historical perspective on the history of vaccination can bring a much more nuanced policymaking in terms of promoting a vaccination. And actually, my message here is probably that when doing vaccination policy, it is probably would be quite wise to have also historians sitting near the table.